now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thank you for joining us. You are listening once again to Evidence or Faith. You can listen to our podcasts on iTunes, or you can check us out on TuneIn Radio app. We're going to be debating the topic of evolution today. We have a debater by email, so we'll be getting to that in a little bit. Nick has taken us up on the uh, challenge to debate him, but instead of calling in, he, he emailed in his debate. So we'll do that. Kirk, I have a news item. Well, I guess this is not a news item. This is a quotation, but it fit into what we were talking about in past weeks about truth. So I thought this might be relevant for today. Okay. We have, this is a email from Apologetics 315, and they're quoting this is Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason, and he's talking about the things that relativists can't do. And in a past show, we talked about truth and true truth and relativism and subjectivism and what it is. And relativists have a real problem with truth. They're the people who say, well, that's true for me, but not for you. So if you're going to say that about things, especially about religious truth and about morals, you have some problems. So here are the top seven things that you can't do as a moral relativist. All right, number one, relativists can't accuse others of wrongdoing, right? right. Because remember, sure. that's right for them. Right. And number two, relativists can't complain about the problem of evil. Nope. They can't <laughs> say God's doing something wrong. Nope. After all, it might be right for him. <laughs> Relatives can't, relativists can't place blame or accept praise, right? I mean, they're not doing anything better than anyone else, and they can't blame anybody for doing something less than what they did because it's just true for them. That's true. <laughs> and number four, relativists can't complain that anything is unfair or unjust. Nope. Right. You're not treating me unfairly. You're just doing what is true for you. That's right. <laughs> so, so even if there was slavery, that wouldn't necessarily be unfair because that's just true for them. Right. Relativists can't improve their morality. Right. I mean, after all, if whatever you do is right for you, then how can anyone improve upon that? You're already doing what's right. So there can be no person to stand up in the community and say, hey, I think you're all wrong. This is the way we ought to behave. What are they going to say? They're going to say, oh, that's just true for you. <laughs> Six relativists can't hold meaningful moral discussions. That would make sense. No. And seven relativists can't promote the obligation of tolerance. 
right? That, because being intolerant might be the way that you think is right. That's true for you. Right. Or racism might be true for me. There's no, there, <laughs> there's no objective standard by which to say that someone is being intolerant or, or not. That's right. So that is from Apologetics 315. That's great. Are we going to hear that on the David Letterman show anytime soon? Oh, yeah, that we should. We should send have, it to him. <laughs> yeah, maybe he'll put it in. We had some emails from one of our listeners. This is a listener who has emailed before. He is a lecturer in philosophy, and I have lost the place where he says where he is. I know he's in the United Kingdom. Oh, here it is, Ireland, Cork, Ireland. His name is Ireland. Seth. I was going to read, he sent me two emails, I was going to read them and then respond to them, but after I responded by email, then he sent me back more, so we have like four emails now and it's getting a little bit long, so <laughs> I just thought I'd highlight a few of these things. Seth, uh, do you remember Seth, Kirk? He no, wrote actually I don't. Past. He accused me of lying on air and what turned out was that he had just misheard two different podcasts and he thought I was contradicting myself. And so he wrote an email accusing me of lying. And when I pointed out, hey, you know, why don't you go back and listen to the podcast? Uh, then he admitted that I didn't lie, but he refused to apologize uh, for calling me a liar. Well, so, you know, that's right for him, right? <laughs> oh, I don't know if he's a moral relativist. I'll have to ask him that. So, But apparently not listening too well, at least at the, in that case. I don't uh, remember that at all. I wonder if that was before I came on the show. Possibly. Was it that far back? And he's called us stupid in the past and things like that. So, you know, he's fond of the ad hominem argument uh, for a someone who lectures in philosophy, you know, pretty pretty wrong. But I guess he doesn't think that everybody knows what ad hominem arguments are. So he doesn't think how that he doesn't uh, think how that weakens his argument. Oh, so anyways, wow. he just he wrote because he wanted to point out that when we were talking about the fact that truth is exclusive, that there was a bad illustration that I used. So he says, your logic is off. If I were to say, I would like an apple. Okay, and we use that to describe, again, that truth is exclusive. So when I'm communicating to you something that I want and I use the word apple, by communicating with you what I want, I'm, in effect, telling you a whole list of things that I, I don't want. I, I'd like you to get me an apple, and I don't mean that I want you to get me a glass of water or a gearbox. Right. So, in a sense, we're excluding all the other possibilities, and that's what helps us to communicate. That's how we can find out exactly what the person is talking about. And truth is like that. If I say, this is an apple, I'm excluding all other things. So I'm excluding all the other possibilities. It's not a dead body. It's not a goose. It's not the color blue. You know, it is an apple. Right. And that's one of the ways that we know truth. Let's put it that way. Right. That it's if you if if something excludes all other possibilities, then it you know it has the it's similar to truth. And if now, really, if if you don't accept that uh, definition of truth, then it's impossible to communicate with anybody. Yes, that's right. In fact. He, in the very next sentence, he's going to use that definition. Even though he seems to be a disagreeing with it, he can't help himself. He has to use this view of truth. So, 
So let me finish what he says in the first sentence. So your logic is off. If I, if I were to say I would like an apple, this does not imply that I do not want an orange or a gearbox, etc. Okay, now, so that's actually true. I can want a bunch of things, right? I can want an apple and a glass of water. I could want an apple and a glass of water and a gearbox. But that's not exactly what we were talking about, right? I was talking no. about how you communicate truth with one another and the fact that truth is exclusive. So when I say I want an apple, I'm asking you for a particular thing which excludes all other things. Right. So that's so so okay, so right, maybe that's not the best example because you get confused about well, I could want more than one thing. You know, so maybe he brings me, I yeah, ask but, for an apple and somebody brings me a gearbox and maybe I actually do want a gearbox. But you're only expressing one want. You're not expressing the other ones. That's right. That's right. So, and, and this was in the context of communication. Okay. So, so I don't think it's a, you know, 100% correction, but I do see that it could be an unclear example. So okay. perhaps in the future we should say that I have to describe something as this is an apple. Okay. This object here is an apple. And right. by that, I'm either telling the truth or not telling the truth, depending on what that object actually is. Right. So, okay, now here's the, here's the, the next sentence. He says, it merely means that I want an apple. Okay, well, that was our point. It merely means or it basically means or it simply means that I want an apple. Right? That or it specifically what means I want an apple. <laughs> right. That was the whole point of the illustration. So you see, he really does know that what we were talking about is true. Otherwise, he couldn't because he agrees with us. When In his correction, he tells us that we're right. So anyways, and so that is from Seth. And then he sent a second email before I responded to that one. He sent a second email saying that he wanted me to realize that there are different definitions of truth or different actually theories of truth. So he says, as for the definition of truth, there are more than one. You seem to give more weight to the correspondence theory of truth than anything else, but it's certainly no foregone conclusion. You have coherentist theories of truth, pragmatist theories of truth, constructivist theories of truth, picture theories of truth, and so on. And then he says, this is pa or don't patronize your audience. And, of course, I actually happen to know that there are many different theories of truth. I happen to agree with the correspondence theory of truth, and I believe that the Bible describes the correspondence theory of truth. So that's why we talk about the correspondence theory of truth, since this isn't a podcast about or a radio show about philosophy. We don't necessarily go into all the different aspects of philosophy. And I actually didn't know about one. He was talking about the picture theories of truth, and I've never heard of the picture theories of truth. So I didn't know what he was talking about then. So I mentioned that to him, and he responded to that. But let me go continue on with his second number two email where he said, and don't stack the cards in your favor, want to be intellectuals, want to be thinkers, start thinking and do some research for crying out loud, I guess because we didn't mention all the other theories of truth uh, that we didn't do our research. And he says, oh, going to fringe Christian conferences doesn't count. So, and I guess he's talking about the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So I point out to him that the EPS, as far as I know, is the largest philosophical society other than the biggest one, which is the American Philosophical Association. So it could hardly be called fringe. And since 
you know, people from Princeton and Harvard and other, you know, schools show up there. I, I don't think that really you can correctly call it fringe. I wouldn't really call those fringe colleges, would you? No, I wouldn't. So, <laughs> so anyways, but let's see. So then he, okay, so after I told him about my example, I gave him my response. He says, I apologize. So we did get actually uh, an apology this time for him. He says, I misspoke. The picture theory of truth is, it's not surprised you haven't heard of it since it's actually the picture theory of meaning, which was set forth in the earlier half of the 20th century and on and on. And like I said, I don't want to read all of this. He does, he does ask, he wants us to talk about the theories of truth. And he says, when one True. Oh, oh. He uh, he says he thinks that the correspondence theory doesn't apply to the Bible, and he says he puts this cryptic sentence as when one truly dissects the scripture. So see, he has this secret knowledge about the scripture, and that that proves that it's not the correspondence theory of truth. Okay. But of course, if you accept the scripture uh, as being true, and you actually look at it and what does it say about truth, you can definitely apply the correspondence theory of truth to it. Let's see. Oh, then he asks, whatever happened to Dr. Mike? So apparently he doesn't, he didn't hear the podcasts. I, I'm assuming he listens on podcasts since Ireland's a little bit far to be listening to the radio show. Right. I don't think our itself. signal goes that far. But he asks about what happened to Dr. Mike and... All right. You still there? I am here. It sounds like cut out for a second there. Sounds like somebody's uh, having a problem with the plumbing or something. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so folks, we, this is the wonder of modern technology you're listening to here. <laughs> absolutely. You can hear me okay now, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. So anyways, Mike, okay, now we still are having a problem on my side. I can hear you okay. Okay, but I have an echo. Perhaps we should explain to listeners that um, Keith and I are in two different locations and we're, we're, our signals are being mixed here and it looks like they're getting a little mixed up. <laughs> okay, can you still hear me? Yep. All right. You might have to introduce the next email while I get a better connection here. Okay. You're adjusting your computer. That reminds me of uh, when we used to watch television as kids and something would go wrong and you'd see that slide come up on the screen that would say, please stand by. Technical difficulties. <laughs> there you go. That sounds good. You sound okay now. I am back. Okay. Oh, well, I guess I was explaining about Dr. Mike. So Dr. Mike had to get his practice up and running on the electronic medical record system that the government's requiring all doctors to go to. Right. So he just didn't have time for the show anymore. It was a long drive and all that. But he's actually been on several times since then Yeah. as co-host. And so, I don't know, maybe Seth didn't hear those. And then he criticizes Dr. Mike about using his professional label as doctor. Okay. Apparently, he's not familiar with the rules of etiquette. Physicians are properly called doctor as a social title. It's just like saying Mr. Right. to somebody else. So it's perfectly polite. You're not using, you know, you're, you're not overstretching your authority by saying doctor when you are talking about a physician. Now, for, for him to use his title doctor socially, that would be an overreach. But he can use his title, I, I, or I guess his title is lecturer. I don't think they, they use a different system in, in the UK. He's not a professor? No, he's a lecturer. Okay. I guess it would be similar to a professor here. Right. But anyways, you would only use that professionally in your capacity. So if he came on the air to debate us, then he would, we could call him professor. 
but uh, you're not supposed to use your professional titles socially unless you are a physician. So you should look that up in a book on etiquette. Yeah, that is, if that I, is the proper way to address physicians as a doctor. If I met my general practitioner, you know, in a social setting, I don't think I would call him Mr. So-and-so. I would still say doctor. Yes, that's right. But if you met a, even if you had a, you know, double or triple PhD in, you know, chemistry or, or something like that or biology, you would not call them doctor in a social setting. Right. So. Okay. Now that we have that all straightened out. <laughs> So anyways, yeah, and I think there was more to the email, but I just tossed it in the trash. Sorry about that, Seth. <laughs> so let's go on because listeners might remember that one of the emails we had in the past was from Nick. Nick is also from the UK, and Nick challenged us on our our shows on Just about everything. Evolution. He challenged us on just about everything. <laughs> well, specifically to deal dealing with evolution. Right. So we haven't had a debate on evolution. I was hoping that the irreligiosophy people would debate us on evolution, but they declined to debate us and their podcast is no more, apparently. Oh really? Yeah, they have been drifting off, you know, the it's very difficult for atheists to work together because, you know, their egos get in each other's way. <laughs> so they have had a falling out and oh my uh, gosh. They're, yeah, they're, you know, of course they would tell you how, what moral people they are. But um, <laughs> aside from that, aside from the little dig at irreligiosophy, they, the podcasts have climbed off to less than once per month now. So they are at, at an end. Yeah. Wow. I don't know how we got sidetracked on that. Who knows? So, so Nick... <laughs> this is a conversational on- show, so we can end up in any direction almost. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we were talking about the possibility of debate and how irreligiosity didn't want to debate us. So we offered Nick to debate us, and Nick essentially did debate us by emailing us this big, long four-page email, which I've... Please, I'm begging you, other listeners, don't send us four pages. Oh, so that explains that. I, I You sent me a copy of his email and his last email and I sent a response to it and I got this huge email in response and I was like holy cow you know I I asked you to send me one thing that you disagreed with that we said in our our past podcast and I would kind of you know respond to that and then I got this four page email and I'm like holy cow he sent me an encyclopedia here so that explains why then He's yeah, kind I guess of, so. I mean, he's I, he kind of debating here. He is debating us, but that's okay. uh, certainly what he chose to do because he didn't respond to our offer to debate him. For those of you who are just tuning in to the radio show, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are debating evolution today. So we have a emailed in opponent. So I guess, Kirk, probably the best thing to do, since you did answer him by email, I, sorry, couldn't be bothered with a four-page email. <laughs> I, uh, it's funny, you know, when I first read his email, I was like, I'm not going to answer all of this. This would take me six months to do this. But when I started writing replies, it, like, kind of grew. <laughs> and then, you know, I would go off and do something else, and then I'd come back and I'd write some more, and then I'd leave it, and then I'd come back and write some more. And before I knew it, I had answered almost everything in his letter, <laughs> even though I didn't set out to do that. Well, and we are open to these kinds of challenges, you know. I mean, don't assume that we've heard it all before. 
In this case, we have heard it all before, but don't assume that. You might be telling us something that we didn't know. Right. So do email us with your questions and your objections to what we're saying. And we especially like, you know, sincere questions where you really want to know the answer to something. And we'll take the time, if uh, you know, to answer those kind of queries and try to... uh, And Nick is very polite, you know. he. Oh, yeah. uh, He's very straightforward. And so he tells us what he thinks are the best evidences for evolution and he goes he takes us to task since we were we were not doing a episode about the positive evidence for intelligent design we were doing an episode about the problems of evolution right so he basically countered us on what we were pointing out to be the problems of evolution i guess it took us four or five episodes to go over all of the problems with evolution right and so that's why his email is so long. So let's tell people about Nick a little bit. We'll give him a little bit of privacy. I won't mention his last name, but he studied physics in Liverpool and at Liverpool University and has been a lifelong, had a lifelong interest in science. So we have a lot in common. And now Um, he lives in Bristol, he says. And now he lives, I'm sorry? He lives in Bristol, England now? Yes, that's right. And he was brought up as a Christian, but he left Christianity, became an atheist in his early teens. Right. And as I said, he has a lifelong interest in science, as both you and I do. So we just follow different paths. All right. So let's start out with his objections to our arguments against evolution. And I guess what I'll do is I'll read what he wrote. And then, Kirk, if you want to read what you wrote back to him, what you responded, and then I will follow up with any comments I'd like to add. Okay. So his first point is about the Daily Mail, which is a, well, I'll just read it. He says, to start, you referenced an article in the Daily Mail. Being American, there is no reason why you should know, but the Daily Mail is not a newspaper for the more sophisticated reader. Its science reporting is considered a bit of a joke, and I'm not just referring to evolution. You need to take any science reported in the Daily Mail and its kin with a very large pinch of salt That's not to say that the article is not true, but you do need to find the source and not trust the reporting of tabloids like the Mail. Okay, so the Mail is kind of their uh, national inquirer. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Well, I wasn't particularly aware of that, but to tell you the truth, I don't remember the exact reference we made to the Daily Mail. Do you? No, I don't. I, we'd have to look it up. I'd have to go I, back. I asked him to send me, you know, you know, what exactly were we talking about when we referenced that newspaper? Because I don't remember. Uh, actually, I think it might have been the the episode where we did the news item about global warming, and okay. we compared. There were two different headlines that came out two uh, a day apart, and so I had mentioned oh, them. Oh, right. And one one headline was. There's been no global warming for 11 years, and then the next the next day there was a headline that said global warming disaster will strike within five years or something like that. Right. Some crazy crazy thing, or it gets I guess it gets beyond the point of no return in five years or something. Right. So okay. one of those I think was from the Daily Mail. Okay. So, anyways, uh, you know that's good to know that, and obviously we don't want to use the Daily Mail as a science source, but actually I think we were just merely commenting about the the oddity of the two contrasting headlines. Uh, so, you know, right. but again, without actually going back and re-listening to it, you know, we could be mistaken there. We might have, for all I know, we might have tried to base one of our arguments, but if we did, he doesn't say what argument it was that we based on the Daily Mail. 
So we know now not to base any further arguments on the Daily Mail. <laughs> yes, assuming that we ever did in the first place. Right. Okay, we got that so, point. <laughs> so his next point is about scientists who support evolution. So he says, you stated that more and more scientists are coming out of the closet in support of evolution. This is a rather misleading statement. By far and away, the vast majority of scientists support evolution, and I think it looks rather desperate when you grab on to individual defectors like you do, as if it is indicative of the majority. It really does not matter how many PhDs they have as individuals, they are as fallible as the rest of us. This is a very poor argument from authority. He said, and then he refers to something called Project Steve, which I didn't have a chance to look up. Intelligent design creationism is not new. It has been around for a very long time. If not in name, but in underlying belief, at one time it was the preeminent explanation of how the world was made because we knew so little about the process. We still have a lot more to get to grips with, but as far as our understanding has grown, most scientists realize how infantile the idea of creationism is. So apart from gaining favor, I'm afraid that the inexorable trend is in the other direction. So how did you respond? Okay, I, I basically wrote back and I thought it was interesting the statement he made that it doesn't matter how many PhDs, you know, the creationists have. As individuals, they are still as fallible as the rest of us. And I said, that's true. That also applies to Darwinists. Absolutely, it does. Right. Yeah, I'm and surprised. It's, it's funny how people can make a statement and then contradict themselves in the very next statement. Right. And then he says, you know, we made a very poor argument from authority. And I kind of granted him that. I said, okay, you know, I can agree with you there that, you know, th there's a lot of scientists, maybe most of them, that uh, say that they believe in Darwinism. Oh, well, but, by far most of I mean, it's not maybe most of them. It's clearly the vast majority, you know, and we're there's no reason to be afraid to recognize that. I mean, the number of scientists who believe in intelligent design or some other creationist view is very small. And so what? He even makes that point himself. So what? That right. doesn't have anything to do with whether the arguments are true or not. Right. right? Well, part of my response was um, that's true, but truth doesn't necessarily get decided, decided by a majority vote. And then I That's went right. on to say, you know, many scientific concepts and theories tend to rise and fall in cycles. And up until about 100 or so years ago, the creationist viewpoint was the most accepted one. But, and I added this, and I said, while many believe that with the new discoveries that are going on today in microbiology, something Darwin knew absolutely nothing about, uh, that the pendulum is starting to swing in the other direction. And then I, I said, and this is actually the most important part of my point, I think, I said that there's, there's actually a whole lot of politics and religious bias involved in academic scientific circles today. And I suggested to him that he read one of my favorite books, which is Philip E. Johnson's Darwin on Trial which I said clearly explains a lot of the reasons why Darwinists are in control of a lot of our scientific institutions today. And then I say, hint, it's not because of the objective scientific evidence one way or the other. Well, if you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we have a tie score here so far. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we're winning so far in the debate. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, well, you know, that's true for us, right? All right. So the next <laughs> thing that he mentions is about creation research. 
He says, not much to say about this, just that it has always seemed a bit of a misnomer to me. Not sure how you can research creationism. What does it entail? It is just reading the Bible, or is it more than that? What sort of things do researchers do? You said that lab work was being carried out to try and see what the limits of evolution are, but what... Do but that does not move creationist ideas any closer to being a scientific theory, so they must be doing other work, right? Now, yeah, now this section of his email really uh, drives home the point for me that he has apparently not heard about anything going on in the creation research field because he's probably, you know, mostly listening to the mass media over there in England, which isn't much different from ours, that's saturated with Darwinist propaganda, and that's all he's heard. And it amazes me that he he doesn't realize that there is also scientific research going on, you know, for creationism, which there's tons of it. And I sent him in the response, I said, uh, if you want to uh, get up to date on what's going on in the creation research field, a good way would be to, there's a number of websites that deal with the uh, current scientific research going on. Uh, the premier one, of course, would be uh, the one that the Institute of Creation Research has that's headquartered in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I mentioned to him that they, they publish a monthly slick magazine that includes a great deal of current scientific research concerning creationism. And a lot of that information is on their website. So uh, their website is www.icr.org for anyone who's interested in looking that information up. And I also sent him a reference to a number of other research uh, sites for creationism. Let me read a couple of them here for any of our listeners who might be interested in checking out this research. Another excellent uh, website is answersingenesis.org. That's a good one. There's also one called uh, creationstudies.org. There is creationresearch.org one called evolutionnews.org. There's a creationism.org. And also christiananswers.net has a lot of good information on it. You can, you can read about the, the really detailed research that's going on now. In the past 30 or 40 years, the, the research for creationism has really exploded. And uh, any of these websites will will bring you up to date on what's going on here. So I really uh, encourage Nick to look at some of these websites to get the other side of the story there, because I don't think it doesn't sound like he's getting it. Right. And I would like to add the Discovery Institute, not as a place where they do research, but as a place where they report about the research. One of the labs that is currently doing lab work on the limits of genetic change is the Biologic Institute. So, okay. so there's plenty of actual biology research going on where they are looking at irreducible complexity and the limits of genetic change and coming out with all kinds of hard lab evidence that supports intelligent design. Right. So, And so you don't that, generally, you almost never hear about any of these types of organizations or these websites in the general media because they really don't bother to report this kind of stuff. That's right. That's right. So he next goes on about some comments that we made about junk DNA and vestigial organs. So for about 
Junk DNA says, I think you misrepresented the mainstream research in this area. Ideas concerning junk DNA and its function are very active areas of research. I'm sure you are aware of epigenetics and what we once considered junk has been implicated in this process. This is not by any means an area restricted to a handful of creationist researchers. Sure, and I don't think we ever said that it was restricted to creation's research, did we? No, of course we didn't. <laughs> we didn't, but uh, well, well, let me finish with the uh, vestigial organs thing. He says then, so you being vague here to refute or agree such a statement, you will need to be more specific. Perhaps we would end up with lots of examples, maybe too many to discuss in one correspondence. Are you talking about the human body or are you referring to nature in general? Okay, my response was that we're talking basically, we were, we were talking in that past podcast about the human body, uh, vestigial organs such as uh, tonsils, the appendix, that type of thing. Um, and I responded that, you know, for a long time that Darwinists said that these were vestigial organs that were kind of evolutionary leftovers that really didn't have any function. And, of right. course, since then, since they uh, said these kind of things 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, we've discovered that almost every one of the organs that they once labeled vestigial, they've discovered that they do have very specific uses in the human body. That's exactly right. And that goes along with what the evolutionists had said about junk DNA, that this was a leftover from the evolutionary process. Right. And in reality, we find that all of it does have, actually has purpose. Now, this, what we were talking about, went to the predictive ability of the theory of evolution. For a theory to be correct, you should prefer the one that gives predictions and predicts what you would then go and find in the laboratory. Right. So evolution does predict that there should be organs that have no purpose. Evolution does predict that there should be junk DNA in our genomes. Right. But what we know scientifically today that we didn't know in Darwin's day and even decades past is that that is not true, that there are functions for these uh, organs and that junk, so-called junk DNA actually does serve a purpose. And so intelligent design actually predicts that you would find a purpose for those things. Right. So, so intelligent design has a much better predictive ability, and so it is the theory that should be preferred on that reasoning. Yeah, um, I argued with them that the fact that they have found that all the all of these uh, organs have a function, that very fact uh, kind of argues more for the intelligent design idea than it does uh, that they're random accidents of nature or evolution, doesn't it? That's right. And in fact, if you have a theory like evolution, it's a real science stopper. It prevents you from going ahead and looking to see what are these functions. You know, if you believe that you see some organ that you don't know what its purpose is, and so you assume that, oh, this is some cast-off from evolution, well, you're not going to spend any time trying to find out what its purpose is. But if you believe that the body was intelligently designed, and even though right now I don't know what the function of this organ is or this, this blob of tissue, I'm going to try and look for an explanation, you see that intelligent design is what is a doesn't stop science it actually encourages science and encourages scientific investigation right. so this is much the preferred theory and you you really should reject evolution just because it is such a science stopper right so he goes on then about our definition of species 
He says, this is a difficult point. I think you did not do a very good job of defining what species is. My understanding is that there, it has little to do with appearance. Now, I'm just not going to finish this because in the interest of time, because he really didn't add anything on his side. He's just saying we didn't define species very well, right? He wants to define it as, he says, most species are that is based on whether they can interbreed or not. And I agree well, with that. I said that's pretty much the way we define it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there is, it is up in the air what a species is because the, the whether the an, different organisms will interbreed doesn't necessarily mean that they are or are not in separate species. Species, really, if you want to think about it in broader terms, it's more about genetic similarity. So if you're in the same species, you're genetically similar. And if you're not in the same species, supposedly you're not. I mean, right. We have plenty of examples of, say, three different populations of fish, okay? And the middle population of fish, that will mate with the populations on either side, but the populations on either side are different enough that they won't mate. So are those separate species? Well, if that's your theory of species, that, that whether or not they will interbreed, then okay, they are separate species. But how come there's a middle uh, type of fish or population of fish that will interbreed with both the other two? Right. So, you know, it really has to do <laughs> with, you know, the genetic pool of information that they are sharing. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with whether or not they will interbreed. I mean, again, and we mentioned this in the podcast, look at butterflies. Okay, are butterflies one type of animal? organism? Yes, I think they are. But there are 20,000 species of butterfly. Wow. Okay, so what does that mean? You know, uh, you know, uh, I think they are one kind of animal. And uh, that's what we're talking about is where do different kinds of animals come from? Right. Well, one of the things I thought was really interesting with his comments here is that he pointed out uh, in, in this paragraph in his email that he agreed that certain animals, just because they look alike, doesn't necessarily mean that they're related to one another. And I jumped on that and I said, I agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. But isn't right. it interesting that Darwinists will often take different fossils that look alike and say that they're related just because exactly. they look alike? That's Is right. that scientific? And I said, no, it's not. Right. That's right. Good, <laughs> excellent point. So then he talks about, and you know, actually most of it, just kind of general since we've only got a, about four minutes or so. In right. general, I'd say he does, because we only finished uh, a page, he generally just talks about things that he doesn't understand. Um, most of this, he thinks that we're making mistakes, but it's actually, it's areas of evolution that he seems to be completely unfamiliar with. Like he talks about micro versus macro evolution. Well, we creationists didn't invent that term. That's an, that's an invention of evolutionists. Right. He talks about sudden changes and he says, you know, that there are no sudden changes. And to my knowledge, no evolutionist worth their salt would ever claim that there is. Well, of course, this is ridiculous. He doesn't know the history of the evolutionary theory. You know, he sure. If he knew Stephen anything about yeah, if he knew anything about Stephen Jay Gould's writings, he would know about his punctuated equilibria, which says exactly that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that changes so he, happened overnight. So he, you know, he goes on about complexity. He talks about fixation of species. So he apparently doesn't even know about population evolution. He doesn't know about how species have to be fixated. Uh, he talks about irreducible complexity and the lack of transitional forms. Now, that he does seem to want to talk about. He does mention some 
that there are some transitional forms, which we don't deny that there are some transitional forms. We just deny that that all adds up to macroevolution. Right. Now, I do want to mention, he mentions the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and this sometimes comes up in a somebody who's a little bit more knowledgeable about evolution. Right. And it's blamed as bad design. Oh, look at this. If I were designing creatures, I wouldn't make their laryngeal nerves so long. Look how it loops down into the chest and then comes up back again. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. And that's basically what Dawkins talks about. And in the giraffe, it happens to be very long. So they say, I wouldn't do that. And it's just like they'll say that the eye is badly designed because the photoreceptors are apparently, according to Richard Dawkins, the great eye engineer, the receptor mechanisms that are receiving the photons are in backwards. So that's not good. Well, it turns out that they're in backwards on purpose. And that's because they have to be repaired so frequently that all of the repair mechanisms that come in to repair the photoreceptors because they're constantly being damaged by the focused barrage of photons that those mechanisms, those repair machinery would get in the way of your eyesight. <laughs> so they have to be in backwards for you to be able to see. So if you, if you had an eyeball that had been designed by Richard, Richard Dawkins, you'd be blind. Yeah. The same with the laryngeal nerve. The laryngeal nerve wraps around and connects to the aorta in order to get pressure readings from the aorta, it's, in, it's connected also to the vagus nerve, which goes to the heart, and it directly measures the pressure in your arterial system and controls the heart rate. So if your blood pressure rises, your heart rate will slow. And, of course, that's very important in a giraffe because when they bend their heads down to, to drink, for instance— they have to have a they have a very specifically designed blood pressure system so that when he bends his head down that far he doesn't pass out right, right. you know if it, if it were if his system were designed like ours is he would pass out but because of the length of his neck and the way he's designed he's designed so that he can bend down like that without causing harm to himself exactly and that those new mechanisms need new information. You need genetic information to tell the organism how to build those mechanisms. It's interesting, too, though, that uh, a lot of times these people will say, well, that's a religious argument. You can't use that. But then they start talking about how God should or shouldn't do things, which is a religious argument. Absolutely. That's not a scientific argument. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith. List the call letters of the station that you're listening to us on. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. Always remember, though, that the best reasons for being a Christian is because it's true.